first and foremost, I am a lover of, of Jesus Christ. Um, and those are two separate things. So there's first Jesus, the man who said, said things about how to love one another and was sarcastic and was sort of bitchy and was sometimes not entirely pleasant, but was very much human, a human being that discovered the God inside himself. And so that is where the Christ comes in, is the Christ is the eternal ideal of discovering God inside of you. You become Christ for yourself, for others, when you discover the God that is already inhabiting you and live it out. And so he is Jesus who became Christ for me. He is a man who looked inside and saw God. Randall Sparling describes himself as a Jesus lover, a husband, a father, a veteran, and a contrarian. As a recent seminary graduate, Randall intends to work alongside fellow veterans as a military chaplain in a career in ministry based sometimes in catastrophe, conundrums, and contradictions. Today on Religium, Randall opens up about his experience as a soldier who first experienced the immediacy of God in the midst of a war zone. We talk about how this impacted his drive to do justice, to work and seek belonging in churches even amid frustrations, and to serve in great humility as a so-called religious authority. I'm Marin Haynes Marcassini, and this is Religium, a podcast that hosts conversations with ordinary, dynamic, and diverse young adults involved in religious community and practice. I wouldn't describe the world that we inhabit here in the United States as reality for me. Mm. It was in the military that I really I discovered my people. Um, for me, the military was that space that I was fully myself. I could fully embody the violent, crazy, wake up at three o'clock in the morning and steal something side of myself and the Jesus following, loving, counseling side of myself at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the military is really the only place that I've been able to do that. Mm-hmm. The coming to PSR was hard because I wanted to make the Pacific School of Religion into a space where I could be fully myself. And since I wasn't comfortable with the way that the space was currently structured, I wanted to make sure that everyone else accommodated my being me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only after leaving PSR that I realized that in, in many ways that was a colonial way of thinking, that the space should accommodate me because I'm a big straight white dude and it should always make me feel comfortable in that and it shouldn't challenge that. That's one of the, the big learnings is that I am a veteran and that is the space where I am me. And this space should not have to bend itself to accommodate. Mm-hmm. As you look back over your life, how would you describe the sort of the, the unfolding of your religious background and your, your religious journey as it intersects and, and weaves into all of those pieces of yourself? So um, in many ways, I'm... I'm just as my child is taking these pieces of my wife and I and blending them together and playing with them and, and discarding certain pieces and taking others, um, I am I very much see my spirituality as a blending of my parents. Mm. Um, my mother is very much a fundamentalist Christian um, and believes in the power of the mystical, believes that God has the power to heal when you pray over something, Mm -hmm. believes that God intervenes in our daily lives. 
And my father teaches chemistry and biology at the high school level. And he's also a, a worship leader for a conservative church, but he does not have that emotive piece of religion. Um, and so in many ways, the struggle that goes on in me is the blending of my mother's emotively driven Christianity and my father's rationally driven Christianity, where everything should, should make sense, where everything should play together in a system where there's rules and, and a right answer in some ways. Um, but also, the thing that my father taught me, very important, uh, is that, that there are separate systems that do not have to mesh for them both to be true. Mm. Um, and that's a really hard concept, and I don't know how else I would have understood it, is when my father struggles with the act of creation, and he struggles with whether it was seven days or four and a half billion years, he teaches science classes, and at some point, probably during the Bush administration, he was required to teach creation science. And he did a huge amount of research in it because that's what he believed. He was in church, and he had to do this research for it, and he discovered that it was complete and utter horseshit. Complete and utter horseshit. He went down to the Creation Science Museum down south where they've got Moses riding a dinosaur and all this other bizarre. But he still had a belief system that gave his life value in Christianity and fundamentalist, literally Bible-believing Christianity. And he had a belief system in, in a scientific world that was bounded by physics, chemistry, and biology. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. And he was able to hang on to both of them and say they don't have to fit together. Mm -hmm. I don't have to understand. I don't have to have a black and white view of the world where one is true and one is not, or this piece is true and this piece is not. Both can be true. Mm -hmm. um, and that gave me the ability to struggle with Christianity and the world that I live in and the military world and the liberal progressive world and have both um, and have the benefits of both and not force one to be right and one to be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so in many ways, my, my approaches to Christianity, my approaches to practicing faith, come from a profound statement of ignorance. Um, it's my favorite part of my own belief system is that I can go, I don't know, and I'm a religious authority, and I still don't know, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, I'm going to look at it, I'm going to think about it, but I'm still not going to know at the other side. Mm -hmm. And like... And saying, I don't know, and looking at other people's beliefs and saying, I don't know, but you've got a good idea, is really valuable for me. That's, that's one of my favorite pieces about my own religious practice. When, you, when were you called to the ministry? What was that process like? So I had a mystical experience. Um, and that, that's a term that I didn't really understand until I came to seminary. I had a moment where... God broke my world. And so I was, um, I was in Iraq. I was assigned to uh, Charlie Rock 126 Infantry at that point, which was an infantry company attached to an armored battalion that's attached to a much larger brigade that was a heavy combat brigade, and then attached to the 1st Infantry Division. I had, was actually a tanker by trade. I was designed to work on armored vehicles. Um, but I'd been removed from the company I worked in because my mouth had gotten me into trouble. So I was assigned to an infantry company. Um, I was a heavy machine gunner, uh, which meant that I would do uh, between 15 and 20 kilometers a night um, in dark 
humping a, and humping is the proper term, uh, a 29 pound uh, M240 Charlie model. And I was losing my mind and my supervisor was torturing people and I was 19 or 20 and I didn't have the ability to do anything about it. And my mind was in a lot of conflict over what I was doing and why I was there. And there were days that I was protesting against what was going on. And there was days that I was participating in it. And I enjoyed both. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard duality to live with now that yes, there were times that I harmed people and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. But God broke me. And I laid down to take a nap in my little steel connex room and I had a dream that was unlike anything I have ever dreamed before or since. It was in full technicolor, more real than real could be. I mean, the, the grass was the epitome of grass. It was all that grass, every, every sense, every, every sense in my hands, every, every receptor in my eyes, everything said, this is the thing we use to identify this as grass. And it is grass. I mean, believe me, this is totally grass. And so every sense in me was saying that everything I was experiencing was the most real that it could ever have been. Mm. And that was really, um, really profoundly hard to leave. Um, it was hard to be in a world where reality was more than it ever could be here. And ever come back. And I spent a few seconds there. And I was invited to meet God. There was a sign on a path that said, I can't, you know, I don't know what the letters were, but I knew that this was the way to go meet God and ask him those questions face to face. And at that time, God was very much male. Mm -hmm. And I realized at some level that the God of the inside of my dream space was not really God. It would just be a reflection of my thoughts about God. It would be a, it would be a uh, echo of what I thought God should be and not really God. So God reached out and said, this thing inside your head is not God, but I see you and I love you. Those were the two things I took away from that. I see you and I love you. I went, oh shit, okay. So I hadn't been attending church um, because I really was terribly bored in every church I've ever been into. Um, I hadn't, didn't have a real belief system at that point, but that was God coming to me and saying, I see you and I love you and that is all. There's no requirement. There's no, you must go to Egypt and do this. You must go to Tarsus and do this. You must go to Nineveh. There was none of that. It was just, I see you and I love you. And, um, and instantly, you know, my, my very broken world that I was living in was suddenly made sense. And I was able to find the things inside myself to confront my supervisor about what he was doing. And I was able to find back channel communications to have people arrested from the American military. And I was able to really do some strange things. Um, one of my favorites was, was during that period, I was also stealing food and 
moving that off base. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do some really, really magical things by just doing them and knowing that God saw me and loved me. And that was okay. And yeah, so that was my first tour. Um, my second tour, the call got more complex. The person that was my spiritual mentor, because after that I had a series of, of really good mentors um, that I would find in the military, and we would work on my spiritual path. Um, so I was newly married during my second tour uh, up in northern Iraq during the, the what was the surge then, 2006 through 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and my company was getting and crap kicked out of it, and my mentor died and was killed in a very brutal fashion, and I had to listen to him on the radio as he died. I was at a different base doing radio watch, and so I actually got to listen to him as he, as he died over about a 10-minute period, and I listened to the guys trying to call for help to get him out of there, and um, I went back, and I was very, again, very very broken by this. I was very upset about this. Um, and I realized that rather than focusing just on my own loss and pain, I had a lot of, you know, at that time I was the old guy of 22. And so I had a lot of younger soldiers, 18 and 19 year olds, that were also had lost him as a, as a comforter. And, um, and so I started mentoring them. And that now I look back on, on Brent Dunkelberger's death as being an act of God. Mm -hmm. Again, not in a way that I would ever say, you know, to his kids or to his widow, who I'm still in contact with. Mm -hmm. But for me, the only way that I was going to get out of worrying about my own stuff and get into other people's stuff was by that, that void, that vacuum sucks you in um, there's a you know there's a huge amount of power in a mentor when they are in, in a space and they are working with young and vulnerable people and when that that person is is killed um, there's a huge vacuum in the unit that is immediately filled by more competent or less competent people I was definitely one of the less competent but I was dragged into this space where I needed to be a mentor and I'm still mentoring those jobs mm -hmm. I'm still checking in with still making sure that they're okay. I'm still sending them stuff on Facebook all the time mm -hmm. and saying, you know, I love you. That's my, my best statement I can give. So yeah, that is my that is my call narrative. I was called to be a, a sponsor and a mentor to veterans and military personnel um, by God in a series of, well, there was more dreams the second time too. Um, during that period, I, I had those technicolor dreams again in which I was searching for this mentor and not finding him. Mm -hmm. um, I could find anyone else in those dreams, uh, but I couldn't find this, this dead mentor. He wasn't there. Mm -hmm. and I couldn't remember what he looked like. And that's a fairly common experience with traumatic loss, but the unable to find him in the dreams was really profound and really strange. Mm -hmm. and, um, so it really kind of pulled me, you know, against my will into, into chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. As you came to know God, you had this moment of knowing that the knowledge of God you had was insufficient and wrong, perhaps in some ways. Many ways. Um, who have you come to know God as? Who is God 
how is how is that picture becoming fuller? Um, so God has aspects that don't fit congruously together. Um, and this manifests itself in me by me having different days where God is different things or different moments where God is different things. But also, um, I'm, I'm able to be comfortable with saying, I have this piece over here in which God is the father figure that I sang in all those hymns when I was in the Baptist church as a kid, right? God is, you know, the, uh, our God is an awesome God, right? And I can still sing that mm-hmm. privately, not publicly, because you don't want to get in trouble, it's all bad. Um, but for me, that hymn is still, there's a piece of God in singing, you know, there's lightning in his, what is it, or this or Thunder something? in his footsteps and lightning in his fist. Yeah, oh, oh, you do know it. I do know it. Um, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. And that, and that that is, you know, his. he reigns. He's the king. He's the, 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 the divine, omnipotent, disciplinarian, naughty grandfather. Um, he's all of that. And then at the same time, God is... A, a force in the universe. God is the same for me as gravity or weak and strong nuclear forces that bind atoms together. That life in the universe is a force that acts independently of other forces. And so God becomes what lives in everything that is life. Not just the universe itself, not just physical forces, but God becomes peace of God inhabits all of us and there may be that may all be God is mm-hmm. is the peace of us that's inside the tree and inside you and inside me and and quite possibly inside the, the all the bacterial colonies that live in our intestines right mm-hmm. like the, these are things we are part of an organism um, in many ways you know individualism is is a disease that's that's in those of us in this culture but in many ways we are just as important as these different colonies of bacteria that live in our intestines that make up a human being, because a human being is not an individual. A human being is a, a world. It is inhabited by millions of inhabitants, mm-hmm. and they work together to make the human being do things that benefit the world. Um, so I think that that is a really good analogy for God, is that God is the human being or the living thing that we inhabit and that we participate in building, mm-hmm. and that God learns, works, and changes through us. When we talk in Genesis, God creates us because God is lonely. Mm-hmm. God creates us because God is incomplete without us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that aspect of a vulnerable God. And a God who later in the scriptures sees the abusive cycles that God has come into with a, a organism where it is a punishment and a rebellion cycle in which one punishes and then the other rebels. And I'm reminded of my own teenage years living with my parents, where it was a lot of screaming and a lot of yelling and a lot of rebelling and a lot of punishing. Um, and God, rather than saying, this is your fault, get out of my house, says that I will kill part of myself in order to have renewed relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where Christianity is is... Um, the most important way that I can approach this God that I have created, no matter which God it is, whether mm-hmm. it's the, the 
disciplinary father that's sort of into the S&M scene, or it's the thing that lives inside of all life. It is a God that is willing to kill part of God's self to have relationship with me. Mm. A God that is willing to say, I was wrong, and I want to have relationship with you. Mm. Um, and even though I've explored other religions and faith practices, it's hard for me to find a God that's willing to say, I have screwed up and I'm willing to kill part of myself to make those amends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious how that, that image and that metaphor have served as like a, a teaching tool for you, either as a parent or as a member of the military or even as a seminarian. Who, how does that story inform how you live? Um, it makes it harder because it, it, it would be both narratives are problematic for doing action in the world. Mm -hmm. Having the omnipotent God who is in charge of everything and every, nothing happens without the approval of means you kind of go, oh, well, then why would I work to change a world where God is in charge of? God is on the throne, right? Why am I doing anything? Equally problematic on the other complete end of the spectrum is the God who is in all life and is going, well, the system will work out. You know, the process has its, has its flaws, but in the end, it'll be fine no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and both gods leave me struggling to find a justification for doing justice in the world mm -hmm. or bringing about action in the world. Um, and there can be some, uh, in my head, some late night, you know, my brain is chasing its own tail kind of stuff where I'm going, well, if I don't even know what God wants, right? Like, what does God actually want from me? God wants me to love God. What does that even do? Mm -hmm. um, why, you know, and that tail chasing can happen where I go and go, well, but why am I doing anything in the world mm -hmm. if God just, God isn't even explicitly explaining what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but the, there's a, there's one little, like, you know, as the hamster is chasing its own tail around the wheel, um, there is like one avenue out mm -hmm. and I go, okay, so what does, what does life do in the universe? Mm -hmm. Um, what is life, you know, what is the universe doing? The universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. As atoms expand, their actual, their structure expands and they become more chaotic. The waves that govern the way that a, you know, a, a electron moves around a proton and nucleus becomes more chaotic as it expands. Mm -hmm. Life is a thing that runs directly contrary to the way that physical forces boundary our universe. Mm -hmm. So life compartmentalizes and organizes things. Mm -hmm. It does not expand and make them more chaotic. It actually organizes things into neat little boxes. And it's something that all life does. So those little um, diatomic protozoa, you know, the little things that, those little tiny muscles and things that lived in our, our uh, the primordial soup and created little calcium structures. Those are the life at its most basic form, organizing something and building something out of it. Mm -hmm. And the and ninety percent of the continent that we stand on is is literally sedimentary rock held together with calcium. Mm -hmm. And life, God, if it God is in all life, created the world for there to be more advanced life. You know. Our North American continent would look like, uh, well, it'd be Yellowstone and Yosemite and a couple of rocky islands. 
But if it was not for life creating a continent here. So advanced life, which I will call human beings problematically, I got it. Advanced life is possible because of the organization efforts of early and simple life mm -hmm. organisms. And um, taking geology classes really blew my mind about that. Mm -hmm. so, okay, cool. So that gives me a, a mission and a focus, right? Life organizes things. Life founds things and makes them less chaotic. Mm -hmm. Also, life explores what God is. In order for me to understand God, I have to have as many divergent opinions as possible about what God is. Mm -hmm. My ignorance about God is profound, but since I am part of an organism that loves codifying knowledge, collecting knowledge, and making sense out of it, I need as many divergent opinions to be in that compendium of knowledge as possible. So I see myself, you know, building what Christianity is in the line of Judeo-Christian thought, right? And in order to do this successfully, we have to have as many opinions about who God is and what God does. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is where justice work becomes important for me, mm -hmm. is that if people's voices are marginalized by my culture, if people do not have equal footing as I do to express their opinions about the way the world should work and what God should do, then I am eliminating vast swaths of God from universal understanding. Mm -hmm. But if I have this, this privilege, if I have this soapbox that I stand on that no one else gets, then it's just me in an echo chamber yelling about God. Mm -hmm. And I don't learn anything. Mm -hmm. And I don't know any more about God. And I can't create God in the universe if I don't have these other pieces. It's like building a puzzle where I just have a bunch of copies of the same darn piece. It doesn't make anything real. Mm -hmm. On a more, like, way less theoretical and much more practical note, I have a daughter. And uh, I firmly believe that race is interlocked with class, is interlocked with patriarchal culture, is interlocked with homophobia. And that all of these are, are functions in many ways of um, our culture's vast hatred of women. Mm -hmm. That's, that, that is really, I think, what is at my root and is at the root of some my culture. So there is a lot of extra justice work that I put into that because I want the world to not be awful to my daughter when as she's growing up. And I see these, many of these at the same root. You know, mm -hmm. if I say to myself, I am... I have these gay inclinations or I have these bisexual inclinations, but I hate them because they are feminine. And I can do this to women because they are feminine. A lot of the, the what we call terrorism, a lot of the, the warfare between states, a lot of the deprivations of capitalism, a lot, all of these things seem to have at their core, at least for me, a masculine hatred of women. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a piece that I can definitely work on and I'm trying to do what what I can. Mm -hmm. Your inclinations for justice are sort of two branches I want to explore, but the first is um, how does how does this interact with your involvement in in the military and what you see as your continued uh, involvement as a chaplain um, and those relationships therein, this intersection of justice work. 
so chaplaincy is what I'm called to because I had these dreams. So yeah, first and foremost, you know, my call is to veterans and the military. Um, that's what God told me God wants me to do, which is the basic, like the easy answer, but also my skills, um, which are for counseling, which are for working with addicts, people in the criminal justice system, um, the people that are, are struggling with mental disorder, all of those kind of intersect with veterans. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is where my skill set is, and it's also where I think God wants me to be. Mm -hmm. um, my work for justice is because I can do it there without stomping on everyone else's toes. Um, if I come to the civilian world and I insist upon a place in a chaplaincy program as a white, semi-straight, I guess that's a term, you know, semi-queer, semi-straight, um, cisgendered male who has a lot of privilege and a lot of struggles with his feelings toward other people. And I stomp my way into a chaplaincy program or I stomp my way into a parish ministry program I can rant and rave about justice all I want and really still be part of the, the problem. Mm -hmm. I think that in the military, where it is very much a white, cisgendered male culture, at least the part of the military I was in, I was in the army and I was in combat arm. Um, so I can actually be a force for justice there in a way that I cannot be in the civilian world. Um, the hardest thing about doing justice work in the civilian world for me has been the most frustrating thing is being continually asked to take a step back. Mm -hmm. And that has been, I totally understand it. It makes good sense. It happens. And it is infinitely frustrating for me, who's a doer. You know, I wanted, I just want to do something. Just give me a job and a thing and I'll make it happen. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. And being told to listen being told to take a step back, being told to keep my voice quiet while other people talk. I can, I can, I, yes, there are wonderful, good justifications for all of those, and wow, I, it makes me feel absolutely frustrated and helpless. Mm -hmm. And in the military, I can, I can have a voice, and I can have a leadership role, and I can do it without saying, hey, I'm stomping on someone else's toes while I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a nice place to do that. And doing veterans work as a veteran, I think, is the best place for me to be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, I mean, my favorite, my favorite two authors on veterans work, Jonathan Shea, who works over at the VA in Boston and has written Achilles in, Odysseus in America and Achilles in Vietnam. Um, and Rita Nakashima Brock uh, are both civilians and have both never been in the military. Mm -hmm. But I think on the ground, veterans really should be working with veterans. Mm -hmm. I don't think that a civilian VA actually does does the best care for veterans. Um, I think that uh, the, the best interactions I've had in the VA have always been with veterans that work there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's important that chaplains be veterans as well. Then mm -hmm. mm -hmm. to pivot a little bit and ask the same question about church. Um, where do you find yourself in relationship with the church and what 
we just take this whole soup of what we've been talking about, where does church kind of fit in that for you? That is the hardest question. I have never had an easy relationship with church. N never. And not even to this day. Um, when I was a child, church was someplace you went to get yelled at for falling asleep because they were being boring. Um, eventually, I, I, when I was eight years old, I started working in the nursery with zero to three infants. Um, because they asked for volunteers, they couldn't get any adults to it because everyone was so fascinated by what was happening in the, in the sermon, right? Because it was, whoa, yeah, we'll put on the whole armor of God, whatever. So I went and worked with infants with an older lady um, that I knew. Uh, she was in her 80s, and so she couldn't do some of the physical stuff with toddlers and getting the infants up and down from the changing tables and stuff like that. So I went to assist her. I worked there until I was 13, and I did not go to church because it was horrible. It was just boring. It was awful. Um, for some of that period, I actually sang in the choir, and so I would go in and do the choir and then come back out for the nursery and skip the rest of the stuff altogether because it didn't make any sense. It had nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It had nothing to do with the God I believed in. It, it didn't represent any of that. It was just a bunch of old people doing things that they thought were fun. And it being a social club, I guess. I mean, I don't know. That, that mentality uh, persisted until recently. Um, you know, about a week ago. But I'll go back to church on Sunday and it'll start again. Um, it, it is really hard for me to work with the church. And I do work in a church now. I'm a minister of counseling at Garfield Park Community Church. I've been there for a year and a half. Um, I have made a commitment as a volunteer. Uh, I don't get paid. And so I'm there every Sunday. I do all the prep work. I set up the communion table. I uh, run interference during the service, which is my biggest role, is um, taking our, our homeless community under my wing, sitting with them and listening to them, or making sure that their needs are met, or making sure that they're eating and gently asking them to leave sometimes, or calling the cops if they become unruly. Um, that's, that's my big role. I work with other people too, but mostly it's with our, our homeless and mentally disordered communities at the church. And those are the people that I like. Those are the people that I hang out with. I, I don't know what a solution is for the church. Um, but it, it's so frustrating when it's a place that people come once a week to hear someone else do their do their God work for them. Mm -hmm. You know, their people are lazy and they're looking for a freaking intercessor. They're looking for someone else that goes to God and gets answers and comes back with them. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love most about the church that I am at now is that many people preach. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a different person every Sunday. Uh, there's seven or eight of us that are now in a rotation to preach. And if you want to have a voice, if you want to go to God and bring things back to the community, be the be the, the bodhisattva for your community, go to go to the paradise and bring the stuff back, then you can. And everybody has the opportunity to do that. And if they want to do it, they can. If they don't want to do it, they can't. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. And I'm much happier with that than having a single pastor that gives you the magic words from God every week. Mm -hmm. It's still hard. Um, 
it's still hard to go there. It's still, it's, you know, all the way through the process. I wake up in the morning and I kind of go, oh God, it's a beautiful day and I could just stay home. Um, and that's not a feeling that I discard. You know, there's a lot of me, a lot of times when I've said, oh, well, I'm just being lazy. No, if every single Sunday of my entire life, I get up and I go, oh, fuck, I gotta go to church. Then that's not a problem with me. That's 30 something years of church being a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. So, um, I the, the feeling that I wish I could have in church is the feeling that I get when I take communion with people outside of church. Mm -hmm. When I'm in the jail system and I, I'm taking communion to inmates, and we do communion, I have a feeling about it. It's real. It's real. We feel the sacrifice of Christ. We feel the oneness with God. Mm. It's the moment in, in our lives where we, we get to, to transcend our, our reality into this other world and get to say, what, what is this feeling? Mm -hmm. We get to transcend ourselves. So yeah, the, I, want, I want that. I want, the, I want the moment that I transcend the world and see more than just my own piece of God through yeah. communion. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most profound moments I had while I was in seminary was taking communion as part of a protest immediately before being arrested mm -hmm. with a group of, of friends and random protesters and we had somebody's almonds that they had a bag of almonds and a flask of tea, green tea and we that was cold and we took communion as a group on our knees as this this protest was being by the highway patrol mm -hmm. and um, I have never had a more profound feeling of communion than immediately before being arrested and taken to a, a detention facility um, and, and you I really came to understand the Last Supper in a totally different way mm -hmm. right which is I wanted to see God in a different way and I did yeah. that was that was what I want from church but I don't I don't think there's any way to force it yeah. I don't think there's any way to get it every Sunday you can't you can't snap your fingers and say, you know, divine intercessor, we are on a schedule here. We have a week, you know. So I think I think that church is, is the best way of doing doing a thing. God, it sucks. Mm -hmm. It just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so to circle back to the hard question. You work in a church. You're mm -hmm. part of religious authority. You're part of religious tradition. Like, if you had to answer the question, why church? What's valuable there? How might you answer that? Um, church is a lot like American civil government. It is the worst way of doing something that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, it is literally the, you know, Socrates of thousands of years ago said, hey, democracy, worst form of government, because it's a tyranny in which every single other one of your fellow citizens is the dictator. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, a, a million tyrants ruling a country. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is absolutely absolutely true and it's also a lot about church for me it's like mm -hmm. this is the absolute worst way of doing of, of connecting with God but frankly right now 
and for the last 2,000 years, or you know, 1,700 if you go to PSY, um, church has been the only way for us to figure out how to connect with God. Mm. It's the th only thing that's worked consistently in the Christian practice is going to church. And it's taken on a millions of different forms. It's had different ideas. It's had denominations. It's had fights and splits and reunifications. But there is something inside of us that says, you know, once a week or thereabouts, we go and get into this building and we sing some sappy songs and we hear a message from somebody who's supposed to be more profound than us. Like, that, that is... <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's what works. It's what works. It's worked for, for 1,700 years and we have tried to break it every which way but down and, and it's, it's still working. So our beliefs have changed, our religion has changed profoundly in the time, but this idea that we should all get together once a week and, and look at each other and sing some sappy songs is a thing that works. Mm -hmm. um, and I am not eager, in fact, I am very eager to support the church, even though it frustrates me, because I have nothing to replace it with. Mm -hmm. And. I have seen several people in my generation say, oh, I have the new key to replacing church. It's going to be small groups, which meet in the home, or it's going to be, we're going to meet outside the church and do these things. <coughs> Great. Prove it out. If it lasts 1,700 years, then I'll believe it. But right now I've got this thing that seems to work for humanity and Christianity, mm -hmm. and that's, that's church. And I'm going, to, I'm going to support church, even though I don't like it, because I think that it's got value. Mm -hmm. It's a system that works. You're a religious authority now. Mm -hmm. What is a religious authority? And how do you, who are you within that role? I am a religious authority, which is enough security to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the important part of me for me being ordained. Um, and I'm not ordained yet. Ordination is giving me the security to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and not everyone interprets it that way, but that's the way I'm taking it, is it's, I am accepting my responsibility as a religious authority, and I'm taking it seriously, and I'm going to be vulnerable about it. So I, I have enough authority, and I have enough responsibility to look people in the eye and say, I have no idea what you should do. You, please talk to your God about that. Um... Uh, I have enough authority and responsibility to look at people who are dying and say, wow, uh, I have no idea, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend that God has something good that God is doing with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to try and comfort you, and I'm going to try and comfort your family and friends, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to stand here and say, God is working a miracle by killing you. And, and that is my place as a religious authority, is to look at people who are, are mourning and say, and this, God is here too. And it's important for me to make meaning out of the stories of the Bible in ways that encourage people toward living God in the world. Mm -hmm. that, that is what I can do now as an authority, as a minister, is say, this too, this peace, this God.
This episode of Religium was created, edited, and produced by me, Marin Haynes Marcassini. Music on today's episode is called Hiding Behind Microphones by Jay Wong. Visit Religium on the web at www.religium.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud with the handle Religium Podcast, and it is also available on the iTunes Podcast Store. Thank you and see you again next week.